0: Welcome to Canada's Most Irreverent Talk
1: Show. This is
0: The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North.
1: Hello and welcome to you all, Canada's Most Irreverent Talk Show here, The Andrew Lawton Show on True North on this Monday, November 27th, just after one o'clock Eastern Time. Hope you had a wonderful weekend. I don't wish to alarm you, or perhaps I do, it is t minus uh, what 30 wait 30 days half september april june and november okay november has 30 days uh which means it is t minus 28 days until christmas i was reminded of this when a few moments ago i checked the mailbox and something that i had ordered my nephews uh, arrive, the first and only Christmas present I've bought. And it reminded me of like everything else I need to buy. And speaking of mail delivery, so I'm, I'm experiencing one of these things I'm sure you all have gone through yourselves right now, where I'm expecting a very important thing to be delivered today. And they've given me as the delivery window the entire day. So there is a span of, I you know, maybe eight, nine hours in which that could be delivered. And I need to sign for it. And I know it's going to come in the 45 minutes that I am on this show. It's like the only thing I have that I can't get away from. I know that the guy is going to deliver it uh, right at the exact inconvenient time. And I'm going to like have to go and uh, go to the post office in like three days or whatever when it's available. So uh, I'm sharing this to say that I'm just like you, experiencing the same real world problems that we all do. Like uh, not being able to run uh, to get to the mailman at the door in time. Uh, We are going to talk about a fair deal of things today. We have Lev Lysik from C2C Journal on the perils of a digital currency central bank digital currency which the canadian government has vowed to plow ahead with we also have our good friend from the canadian taxpayers federation chris sims on the now expanding mainstream media bailout that the liberal government decided to kick a few more millions towards what's uh, you know 120 million dollars between friends right and no better friends than the liberal government and the legacy media And I also want to talk about this rather amusing story. So you may recall the NDP have this supply and confidence agreement with the Liberal government. So after the 2021 election, the NDP said we are uh, broke AF, which is what the kids say for broke us. Well, you can probably use your imagination on that. Uh, They do not have money to go to an election again. Jagmeet Singh knows that he is probably out as leader after the next election. So the NDP said we are going to give the Liberals our undying support for the next four years. We are going to make it as though the Liberals effectively have a majority government despite not having a majority government and not even getting, I would say the popular vote. But the NDP can't sell that to its members without showing some concessions. So uh, the NDP, the Liberals, they all went behind a room and they all just said, okay, well, uh, what, are we, what about this? What about this? And then they come around and the NDP says, okay, we can get our members behind this, but you've got to give us something. So the Liberals said, well, what about that PharmaCare thing that we've been promising that we haven't done but we had already promised and campaigned on it and Jagmeet Singh said sold he's like if you ever saw Seinfeld you'll know there was that episode where Kramer was suing the coffee company because he burns himself on a cup of coffee and uh, he and his lawyer are going back and forth with the uh, coffee company and then Kramer goes into the office And they're about to offer him, because we saw what they were doing. They were about to offer him, I think it was like, you know, $100,000 and a lifetime supply of free coffee. And the coffee executives say, well, Mr. Kramer, we're prepared to offer you a lifetime supply of free coffee. And, and Kramer goes, I'll take it. And that was the end of it. So Kramer is Jagmeet Singh, the coffee executives are Justin Trudeau. He gave away anything and everything he could and got nothing in return. Now, why that is important, is because the NDP have the membership have basically been duped by their leader right now. They've been led to believe that we are going to get a more NDP oriented government to more socialist government from the liberals. Now, I mean, again, Stephen Gilbeau got up there a couple of weeks ago and he said, well, I'm a proud socialist. And I'm sure a few of the NDP socialists were like, yeah, yeah. Down with the patriarchy and capitalism and all that jazz. But realistically speaking, the Liberals have not delivered on these key NDP pledges. Now, this is all a bit of a wind-up to this fantastic story in the Globe and Mail. NDP open to waiving end-of-year deadline for Pharmacare legislation. You see, this wasn't just a general promise. The pledge to deliver a Pharmacare plan came with a time frame. The Liberals had to do it by the end of 2023. The Liberals had two years two years plus a few months, give or take, to come up with this plan. And supposedly they've been working behind the scenes with the NDP for that two years and a bit. And this Pharmacare plan, which by the way, I do not want and I do not support. So make no mistake. I am not criticizing the government right now because I wish they had produced this. I'm glad they haven't. I'm glad it's like that so-called gun buyback where just bureaucratic ineptitude and incompetence have prevented a bad policy from coming to fruition. But the reason I bring this up is because all of this has led to the NDP reneging on its one concession that it got from the Liberals which was to deliver this thing by the end of 2023. Now, hilariously, and this is the part, I mean, I think it's hilarious. You may not think it's hilarious. I think it's hilarious because Jagmeet, Jagmeet Singh is the guy that did the victory dance after like subsequent election losses. He just pretended that he won both of those elections because I think he genuinely believes it. No one around him wants to tell him the truth, which is that, uh, no, you actually failed uh, Jagmeet, but that's okay. But uh, Jagmeet Singh does this uh, this thing where his party, and his health critic, Don Davies, are now saying, well, we're okay waiting because it'll be worth the wait. That's what this story said. We're okay waiting because it will be worth the wait. So, so they're now saying, well, yeah, they aren't doing it in time, but it's going to be extra, extra good when they do. So we're okay with it all of a sudden. And I'm just looking at this saying, oh my goodness, if you believe this, if you are an NDP member and you believe that you are getting anything from your party, giving a blank check to Justin Trudeau for four years, I have some oceanfront property in Saskatchewan for you. Uh, This is like the most insane thing ever. It's that old, you know, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. Uh, The NDPers who support this, who keep going down this road, should be saying, shame on me, shame on me, shame on me, because you are not getting anything for this. So that is covering off the left side of Canadian politics today. Let's hop back over to the right. When Pierre Polyev uh, got before reporters in Toronto, it's gotten to the point where it's always going to be good. It's always going to be good when he gets up there because uh, Pierre Polyev, whether you like him or not, doesn't like accepting the premise of the question. In fact, he doesn't even like the pivot. You may recall this exchange on the weekend with a reporter from the Canadian press who probably regretted getting out of bed that morning. Do you think it was responsible for you to call yesterday's explosion by the
0: customs uh, by the checkpoint at the Rainbow Bridge terrorism, when no U.S. or Canadian officials said that was the authorities said that was the case, and when the New York governor also said there was no evidence to suggest terrorism activity? Actually, you're wrong. You're a CP. Okay, so CP. By the way, CP. Just for everyone's knowledge, did have to make three corrections for falsehoods that they put into a single article. I think that might be unprecedented. Um, I'm actually thinking about checking with the Guinness Book of World Records to see if there's ever been a news agency that has had to issue three corrections for patent falsehoods that they admit they had been made in one single article, and now you've made yet another falsehood in your question. Um, um, Where you are wrong is that CTV reported that the Government of Canada was presuming that the incident was terrorist. So. Yeah, that was and that's what I said in my remarks. You're right. It was a media report. But it's citing media reports and not Which is what I said. In the House I said there are media reports. And you think that's a responsible thing to go on to make that, that kind of a, a statement at the time without speaking. W- what kind of statement? Calling something terrorism. I didn't. I said there were media reports. So that's the distinction we're making? Today. No, there's no distinction. What I said and I was right, was that there were media reports of a terror-related event. By your admission, there were media reports of a terror-related event. And that media report, according to CTV, unless you're questioning their integrity now, came from security officials in the Trudeau government. So do you think the CTV was irresponsible in putting out that tweet? Do you, sorry, I'm ask, and I've I already answered that. Do you, do you think CTV was irresponsible to put that tweet out? Well, you just did comment. Okay. So, I, you know, I just hope you're not going to print something that you have to apologize for again.
1: Ooh. I, I, as an audio guy, I can't actually drop a mic because it pains me too much. It's like burning a book, but metaphorical mic drop right there. Ooh, I've never really, I just going to say I've never really been a drug user. I've never at all been a drug user. I don't use drugs. But uh, like, I imagine this is what it feels like to be high. I'm just like, you know, put that into my veins right there. Just a loop of those sort of smackdowns. Because anytime a conservative politician has failed and floundered in recent years, the reason for it has typically been an inability to engage in even the simplest of coherent and cogent and clear answers from the media. And in that particular case, in that particular case, we see Pierre Paglia doing what he does best, which is challenging the premise, attacking it head on. The only thing that would have made that slightly better is if at the end he went and said, hold on for a moment, I got something for you. He goes back to his briefcase, he opens it up, he pulls out a big shiny red apple and says, you get today's apple of the day. Because an apple a day keeps the media at bay. I believe that's how the saying goes. Wait, no, I might be mixing it up with something else. But uh, that was basically what Pierre Polyev was doing. Now, as far as the actual substance, Pierre Polyev was right. And the journalist, Sean's asking me if that's the opposite of the poutine. Well, it's a bit of a play on the poutine because you know you may remember Justin Trudeau gives out poutine to reporters he likes as a reward. For uh, Pierre Polyev, the apple could kind of be like the Razzie where you like reward the worst. Uh, there, yeah, Sean. I just said the Razzie thing, Sean. I did, Sean's going to think he came up with that, but I came up with it first. But there's a bit of a delay, so I um, mean, I don't know. We'll share the we'll share the credit on that one to make up for last week's math mishap. But nevertheless, we are going to see this. So yeah, he has to like basically walk around with a bushel of apples, like one of those like uh, Cubs doing Apple Day, and he'll just like start handing them out to his least favorite reporters of the day. But what he actually said in the House of Commons was exactly what he shared with the media on uh, at that press conference, which was that there were media. Media reports acknowledging that this had been a terrorism incident. There were media reports acknowledging this was a terrorist attack. The media report said the Canadian government was treating it as such. And by the way, I mean, I mentioned this at the tail end of my show on Wednesday. And True North in its coverage was deliberately cautious on this because while it looked and sounded and felt like terrorism, there was some reporting of that, notably from Fox News, it was not that. And it's not to say that we were always just sitting back and just saying, well, we'll just wait until tomorrow to cover it. We were obviously keeping up with all of the coverage, but at a certain point, you have to just decide which of these reports is seeming more plausible than the others. And at the beginning, pretty much everyone was running with the fact that this was likely national security related. And then as more details came, we realized it was not. And I think there are still some unanswered questions about what exactly happened and why, but we know the fact that it was near the border had nothing to do with anything. There was no, I mean, Vivek Ramaswamy, I saw him on Fox News uh, when this was going on saying, this is why we need to secure the northern border. And then you find out a few hours later, this was just a couple who had been at the casino in New York and had neither come from Canada nor was en route to Canada. So uh, you have to come up with some new talking points there, Vivek. But the reality is that uh, Pierre Polyev didn't say anything in the House of Commons that was as irresponsible as that reporter's question was trying to make it out to be. And why this is relevant, why this is important is because the media always does this with him and they never learn their lesson. Paul Wells, an independent journalist, not a right winger by any stretch, had a great column about this on the weekend on a substack where he basically said, individual journalists are smart, but you put them in the group. And for whatever reason that the really unwise decisions tend to come out in these scrums, he said, when people get one chance to ask a question at a press conference, they tend to just go forward and ask this really really pointed question but it's always like a why won't you or a didn't you or shouldn't you it's always very accusatory in nature and that's, and I get it because whenever I've been at a press conference that Justin Trudeau's at, and it's like, and I know, all right, well, they're never giving me an interview. This is going to be my one and only chance to ask him a question this year. I've got to make it a good one. And you try to like word it perfectly and pack all of the stuff into it. But you, when you go into a press conference or a scrum thinking that a question is going to be this like just silver bullet that, I mean, that's violent rhetoric. I'm sorry, but this, this silver rubber duck that just soars through the air and just lands on impact and does just the perfect amount of damage. Like It's just not going to happen. But journalists want to do that. They want to end conservatives' careers. So they always want to be the ones to come up with the questions that are just going to cause them to absolutely lose their mind, lose their support, and just go away into the wilderness. Now, this is the media's sport. Pierre Pauliev turns this into a sport of his own. Pierre Polyev loves this sort of stuff, which is why he's so good at it and everyone thinks they can beat him at his own game. And when he comes out in an exchange like this, like the apple munching incident like this, the media doesn't like it. Sean put together a little list of some of these responses here from people, which I'll I'll go through. Uh, Globe and Mail columnist Andrew Coyne had this to say on X, which is the artist formerly known as Twitter. I don't know who he thinks he's impressing with this campus Tory childishness, but they're probably already voting for him. So this is Andrew Coyne saying that, well, the only people that like this are already going to vote for him. He's not going to win any votes with this. Uh, Tabitha Southey, who is a former Globe and Mail columnist, said this entire incident ought to disqualify the man is prime minister. And as a cautionary tale, Pierre Polyev is what happens when you mistake your mentions for your constituency. A Globe and Mail columnist mistaking Twitter for real life. Well, it's a shame I'm reading that on Twitter and I could uh, go the rest of my real life without actually seeing or hearing of Tabitha Salvi. Uh We have another one. This one's from a CBC panel uh, featuring Toronto Star columnist Chantelle Bear. I, I quite like this one. Let's roll that clip.
2: It... Uh will be very hard to sell a leader who is turning out to be an intellectual bully, especially one who picks on people who are smaller than him, in the sense that the journalist asking a question is uh, smaller than someone who's, who is the leader of a major party. And uh, I don't know what's, uh, what is being said outside Quebec in the other language, but I was on a panel today, and uh, the words I used associated with uh, Pierre Poilier, and they are gaining currency, is that he is a, uh, someone who will lie whenever it suits his purpose.
3: But last word to you,
0: Andrew. Well, it, you know. and it, it depends what kind of leader you're looking for. You know, it used to be we looked for leaders, we wanted to look up to them. We wanted leaders, and we looked up to them because they were able to rise above these kind of petty squabbles. Uh, this is small and insecure, and it appeals to people who want a leader who they don 't have to look up to who's just as small and insecure as they are. That's not the kind I think that most Canadians are looking for. I think they want people who are uniters and not dividers, where people who are trying to appeal to the best of us and not the worst of us.
1: Because there is uh, nothing to parrot the everyman's position like the perspective of Andrew Ivory Tower Coyne and uh, Chantel Toronto Star A Bear. So uh, three CBC panelists, they're all seemingly in agreement. We have intellectual bully. We have the uh, idea of uh, this one I particularly enjoy. He's a liar, even though what he said there is technically accurate. Uh, I mean, Andrew Coyne also did the bonus side swipe at conservative voters because they're petty and insecure for wanting to elect a petty and insecure guy like Pierre Polyev. Well, what does that say about Justin Trudeau, that that petty, insecure, intellectual bully, lying tyrant is just crushing Justin Trudeau in the polls? Well, there's a serious point to all of this, which is that those journalists that are asking Pierre Polyev those questions are getting even more money from the Liberal government as of last week. Are they related? Maybe, maybe not, but certainly we have one leader who is threatening to end that gravy train, and he's the one that seems to get more of their ire at scrums chris sims is the alberta director of the canadian taxpayers federation and joins me as always on mondays chris i'm pulling you away from a staff meeting today so i don't know (laughs) if i should say thank you or you're welcome
3: Uh, i can say thank you for now
1: (laughs) all right well uh what first let's let's start with the basics here what has the government announced on this media bailout uh, which seems to be a continuous plan of theirs now
3: Yes, uh, to your point, and all excellent points on this, Andrew, as always, so far, up until now, the so-called media bailout has been just shy of $600 million for journalists outside of the CBC. Keep in mind, viewers, this is other than CBC reporters. So up until now, they would get, on average, around $14,000 or so per reporter. So per newsroom employee, if they had this so-called bailout money that was coming from the Trudeau government in a newsroom, they would get between thirteen dollars and $14,000 per reporter. Now, this entire time, a lot of these big media companies had a lobby group that was working on their behalf in Ottawa hand out, asking for more money, Lo and behold, during the budget update last week from finance minister, Christia Freeland slipped in there to protect the free press. If you can believe it, they have now more than doubled that amount. So by the time the smoke clears, it looks like each reporter or each newsroom employee will be getting around 28 or $29,000. This is again coming from the federal government. So the Taxpayers Federation are super ticked off for two reasons. One, this is an enormous waste of money. There is no way in hell that one nickel of taxpayers' money should go to any private corporation. We're opposed to all corporate welfare, much less media companies. Two, this is a huge and obvious conflict of interest. And Coyne himself has said this directly in newspapers, basically seeing, saying we'll be seen as bagmen for the government if we take this money, folks. This is a huge conflict of interest. So to see him sort of changing his tune a little bit on the ad issue panel is pretty disappointing. At the end of the day, this means more money for journalists who are on the payroll already of the Trudeau government.
1: Well and the one part of this that I find the most ridiculous is that there is no there's no measure at all of success and, nope. and more importantly, there's no target for sustainability because, you know, everyone knows that old saying about teach a man to fish and you feed him for a lifetime versus when you give him a fish and you, you feed him for a day. Well, this is government giving journalists fish year after year after year. The problems that plague newsrooms, the reason that these newsrooms are in such dire straits and are laying off people is because they don't have a viable business model. This subsidy doesn't charge it, which means it becomes a permanent fixture in the Canadian economy, unless a politician comes along and says, well, I, you, you, I'm gonna cut you guys off, which then is it's very easy to end a government program politically, as we know.
3: Yeah, for sure. And in fact, I'll go a step further. It's the subsidy itself, I think, that is helping to destroy their businesses. So as we've seen government funding of media creep up over the last few years, we have seen the people's trust in media tank. Just absolutely tank. I've never seen it this bad before. And surprise, the two are obviously related. So, the last poll I saw, it was this big in depth dive. They do it for the past 20 years. It's this corporation in Canada that does a survey on trust. And the last number I saw, I think it was 64% of Canadians now think that journalists are actively trying to mislead them with statements they know to be false. As a journalist, that hurts a lot because you're supposed to lose sleep over a mistake, over a typo, over getting a number or a date wrong by, by accident, by innocent mistake. No, no, no. Forget that. Now, a big chunk of a majority of Canadians now think that they're actively trying to mislead them. And that's likely connected to the fact that they're on the government's payroll. And what's really disappointing about this, Andrew, is that this doesn't have to be about politics. This could be a left-wing journalism organization or a right-wing or one that tries to stay straight down the middle. You shouldn't take a nickel from the government because one of your roles as a journalist is to speak truth to power. And if you're counting on the people in the halls of power for your paycheck, you are not being accountable to the people. You are not speaking truth to power. You're not comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable. You're asking the comfortable for a handout. That is not real journalism. And further, there's no way then that people who support organizations like the Taxpayers Federation or who watch True North, or even people on the left, there's no way then if we have more journalists going on the government payroll by the day and them getting more money by the day, there's no way for them to hold the government to account using these organizations? How are they to believe the numbers and the reports coming out of the parliamentary press gallery when they're wondering in the back of their mind, all right, how much of your paycheck is counting on Justin Trudeau?
1: Yeah. And I think that's where, and I'm glad you gave credit where it's due to Andrew Coyne on this. He has Mm -hmm. been fairly good on this issue because it it does undermine the good journalists who are just trying to be there that are not beholden to this, but are now part of a climate that is. And I've said the same in the past about Unifor membership. Uh, A lot of print reporters in Canada are members of Unifor. Unifor declared itself the official opposition effectively to the Conservatives in the last two elections. And uh, if you're a reader, how are you not supposed to wonder, well, hang on, is this Unifor Union steward at this local newspaper, not uh, in the bag for one particular side as well.
3: Yeah, exactly. And it's to your point of perception here. And right now, I hope that there are some journalists watching this and thinking about it, because I know there must be, by the law of numbers and the people I've worked with in the past of various media organizations, there must be people right now thinking, A, I'm not really comfortable with this as a reporter, or B, I'm doing my job, I'm trying really hard, I'm being balanced. That doesn't matter. That doesn't matter because just as in ethics, it is the perception of corruption, which matters. Now, because people know that an increasing number of reporters are on the government payroll, it clouds everybody with suspicion. And so it's truly really sad and unfair for those reporters who are doing their damnedest to keep all their W5 straight, to keep their facts straight, to be as balanced as they possibly can, doesn't matter. They'll be perceived as being on the payroll of the federal government nonetheless. And this is critically important because it's happening simultaneously along with a crackdown on independent media voices. So Mm -hmm. with one hand, it's picture it like a vice grip, okay? Like the ones that you use in shop class. On the one side of that metal panel, we've got Trudeau increasingly funding certain media organizations and certain reporters. On the other side, he's tightening this vice on online journalism and independent journalism using things like C11 and C18. So C18 is the reason why you suddenly can't see news on Facebook anymore Google has said they're going to follow suit and pull their news links off the internet. That's because of the Trudeau government. And two, C11 is now passed and the CRTC is rolling out its regulations. And they have announced that platforms that host podcasts, including shows like this, are now going to need to register in order to be regulated. What that means as far as free expression goes, we don't know which is why we're super concerned about these two things happening at the same time.
1: Very well said. I'm just flattered you think I was in shot class uh, rather than the like <laughs> theater arts music nerd that I was. I but, did uh, four years
3: of metalwork, including auto mechanics. So yeah. I
1: understand what a vice group is at least. I didn't need there to use go. that. We didn't need like a cello analogy to speak my language. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but nevertheless, thank you so much, Chris Sims. I'll let you get back to your staff meeting. Send my best to your wonderful colleagues and we will talk to you soon. Thanks, Andrew. All right, that does it for Chris Sims on this edition of the show, but we have lots more still to come. In particular, I want to just uh, revisit this idea of central bank digital currency that I was talking about earlier on in the program briefly and also a couple of weeks back because this hasn't gotten a lot of coverage in Canada. Part of the reason is because we don't have a firm ironclad proposal. But we do know that the Bank of Canada is proceeding with this. They are talking about it, if you read their materials, as though it is inevitable, as though it's just this thing that's going to come. We're all mere passengers and they're just going to shepherd us through this transition. And if you're someone who, like most people in Canadian society, walks around using your debit and credit card everywhere, you're probably thinking, all right, well, digital currency, what's the big deal? Electronic banking and digital currency are two very different things. And we'll talk about why that is now with Gleb Lysik, who is a phenomenal writer with the C2C Journal. We've had him on before about his work there. And in particular, he has a great piece out this month, Hush Money, The Untold Dangers and Delusions of Central Bank Digital Currency. Gleb, good to have you back. Thanks for coming on the show today.
2: Hey, nice nice to, uh, thanks a lot for having
1: me back here. So let's talk first off with what central bank digital currency is, because I, I do think it's important people not conflate it with online banking and electronic finance, which is a pretty ubiquitous part of the finance system right now.
2: Well, the, the major difference in between the C, CBDC or central bank digital currency is that it is uh, controlled by the central bank, right? So the central bank uh, has it has a liability to you, uh, for that currency it's uh very similar to uh, cash in that respect so if you have a bank note you can always uh um go to the uh central bank and say well um i need something for it uh and uh the, what what we have right now as the uh, uh with, with commercial banks you have the the money your online banking these money are uh they belong to the uh, uh, they sit with the uh, commercial bank right and they um, they they don't really uh, they are not affiliated with the, the central bank uh for the most part uh, the central bank just offers uh, some insurance that these banks will pay you, uh, let's say cash, you can withdraw cash if you have an online banking account. So that, that's, the, that's the major difference, the liability. The liability of CBD, uh, CBDC as with cash uh, lies with the central bank. The liability of the digital money we use now lies with the commercial banks.
1: One of the things that the uh, government, the Bank of Canada has told us on this is that it will remain available, it's an option, it's voluntary, it's not basically outlawing cash. But I've heard some people who don't really buy that i mean we already see in some ways aspects of a society that's moving beyond cash there are some major retailers that have said they won't take cash in certain venues and covid was certainly a part of that do you buy from what you've seen that a central bank digital currency would coexist alongside cash or do you think it would really eventually be a a replacement
2: Yeah, that's definitely how it is uh, explained to everybody. Well, uh, everybody, it's not widely advertised uh, as to how CBDC exactly is going to behave in Canada, what it's going to do. But certainly uh, the way the central bank, the government, is assuring us is that if CBDC gets introduced, it will not replace cash, it will not replace your online banking account or anything, it will just be an alternative, a third type of a currency. Um, So, and uh, obviously, If you read my article you will probably get from it that I have personally I I doubt that this is the case Uh, there's no reasons for CBDC to be introduced as a third method of payment there's absolutely no impetus no incentives from uh, from the people who use uh, who use money right there's there's, uh, and even um, central Bank itself did the research on that there's absolutely no need for it right that that begs the the question uh, if the cbdc gets introduced uh, then obviously uh, it needs to take it, its place over something and it's over something is probably going to be cash and we have examples in the world how it's been introduced that's uh, i explained it in my article what happened in nigeria for example where they went live with the cbdc under the same promise that CBDC is not going to replace cash, and as soon as the cbd well, not as soon as a year after from the introduction of CBDC, they just canceled cash there, and uh, half of the population in Nigeria relies on cash, and they canceled it, right, despite of the promises. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to claim that it's going to happen exactly the same in Canada, well, I'm just speculating on that, but uh, I'm just saying that the promise is made, uh, it's not going to replace anything. It's just going to be introduced as, as an option, as a convenience. But <laughs> we, we, uh, we know how it works for, for the most part. It gets introduced for a reason. Mm-hmm. And right now I don't see any reason other than replacing something which is probably going to be cash.
1: I want to talk about the Nigeria case in just a moment, but before we we get there, Gleb, I, I wanted to ask you about the the offline aspect. I've mentioned when this topic has come up on the show in the past, you know, we, we have a very real and very recent example of what happens when our telecom infrastructure is just hampered instantly, which is when the, the Rogers outage happened, I think it was about a year and a half ago or, or you know, uh, 15 months or so ago, and you had uh, retailers who were entirely reliant on Rogers to run their debit and credit card terminals that couldn't do transactions if people didn't have cash they were they were um, up, up the creek without a paddle and you know the central banks that are pushing CBDC kind of claim that they can find a way around this but really there has been no solution proposed for what happens in a situation in which for whatever reason people cannot use an electronic device in the which case you have power outages or whatnot and but they they kind of avoid that that's a big giant glaring problem in this
2: yeah absolutely it's uh it's It's pretty obvious to me it should be for anybody that if you want to do an electronic transaction in between two parties, a seller and a buyer, at least one device needs to be needs to have power. Right. I mean, uh, they are transmitting electromagnetic waves to exchange the information. So you must have power. There's no question about that. Whereas with cash, obviously, you just uh, pass on the banknotes. So fundamentally, everything, every solution about CBDC. Uh, and there there are lots of interesting um, innovations, you know, and uh, that allow to uh, exchange the, uh, this currency in sort of a semi-offline mode, but they're all nowhere near in what cash offers in this respect. So it, it's a very it's a very long discussion. It's like I mean like, all the offline solutions I couldn't fit into my article. Uh, they're they're pretty complicated. And uh, you need to consider various scenarios There's like a long term uh, outage. versus it a, just a short term outage? How much cash you can exchange uh, sort of in that semi offline mode with the other party? Uh, yeah, it's it's a bit convoluted. But again, it's uh, <laughs> cash is, uh, is such a simple solution to all of that problems that uh, CBDC brings up when we start talking about offline operation and stuff. Um, so I'm not sure if I'm answering questions. Well, you are, and I, you know. I said
1: I wanted to go back to to Nigeria because Nigeria had this pilot project originally, and it had very, very little uptake. And this is a you know very large country. Uh, half of them are, as you say, reliant on cash. They did this, and I think it was 0.8% of of people started using this, and then they expanded it. And what happened?
2: Yeah, so the the way it started in Nigeria is that they introduced um, the CBDC in in uh, 2021, and um, yeah, just for the people who already had bank accounts, uh, just to see what the uptake is going to be, I guess. Um, and um, they only they they didn't really see much of an adoption of CBDC. It, it was already obvious, uh, only 0.8% of that banked population. Uh, uh downloaded the wallets and they weren't using them at all like just uh, i guess uh, some curious people just downloaded a, a new free application to their phone and didn't really know what to do about it and that's pretty much was the level of adoption so not much that uh, and a later a, a year later the government seeing those results maybe they s- didn't want to take that as a as a as a, voting, as a voting choice of of the constituents, they just decided to double down, and they just uh, cancelled cash and um, uh, requested everybody, including those who did not have uh, accounts with banks, uh, they just wanted them to bring their paper money to to the bank offices and exchange that for the digital currency. That was a, a great failure and uh, people were literally starving there because they they ended up with uh, with the paper money that was worthless that would not be accepted anywhere so uh, and uh, up until this moment uh, Nigerians don't understand what's going on uh they don't understand the value that CBDC offers they um, the adoption like uh, is is happening but that's only because of the artificial cash shortages people just don't don't have any other choice
1: well you mentioned in your your essay here the advisors from the world economic forum and the international monetary fund i mean were they pushing this on nigeria as just a massive experiment or was this the nigerian government that wanted to do this and then asked for some external advice or do we not know kind of who the who the initiator was
2: uh, yeah, they, they definitely had the advisors and consultants from the IMF and uh, the World Economic Forum. I would probably put more emphasis on the uh, IMF. Um, into, um, but were, were they
1: the ones pushing this? Did they kind of look at Nigeria as being you know, basically a lab for this CBDC experiment?
2: I. I, I honestly don't know much about who was pushing who right and just I just know that the consultants were there they were they were pushing that agenda I just don't understand why because uh, actually if if we look at the World Economic Forum they have a pretty decent framework for introducing uh, CBdc they they give you a, a very balanced approach to what are the cons and pros of CBdc and what are the risks of uh, etc so I, I was actually quite surprised at how I'm biased that that framework was but if uh in in nigeria case it just didn't work right mm. uh for some reason uh, if they followed through that that very same uh framework they would have said no guys sir you should you should, you should stop immediately like uh, there's no way it's gonna work right instead they just pushed it through all right, all right, on to the starving people, <laughs> uh, it just blows my mind. Yeah. Like, obviously, I'm not privy to all the details as to uh, who exactly did what there and why, but you you, you can judge that uh, the results as to uh, what happened there. It looks like they were just pushing that, whether it was coming from the government or from IMF or, or World Economic Forum, uh, they, well, obviously together they decided to push.
1: Well, I appreciate you bringing it up. I hadn't actually read about the Nigeria case until you put it in your essay there. People can read that at c2cjournal.ca. Hush Money, The Untold Dangers and Delusions of Central Bank Digital Currency. It's a lengthy read, but definitely a good one. Gleb Lysik, the author, joins us now. Gleb, thanks for coming on as always. Good to talk to you. Thank you very much all right thank you sir uh one thing i'll mention just before we go because i've got like five emails from it in the last two hours and i people are commenting in the youtube channel you may have seen there's a petition that uh, is going around at ourcommons.ca which is the house of commons website it's uh, a petition to the house of commons that we the citizens of canada have lost confidence in Justin Trudeau and the Liberal NDP coalition. Oh, well, rah, 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 let's all sign this. The petition goes on that we call on the House for a vote of no confidence. They ask for an election 40 days after the vote. They say the government is not acting in the best interests of Canada. Well, of the Canadians who have seen this, 40,000 have signed it as of this moment, 39,778. Now that's impressive. Most House of Commons petitions go absolutely nowhere. The petition has to be sponsored by a Member of Parliament. In this case, it's Conservative MP from Peterborough, Michelle Ferreri. Uh, Look, if you wanna sign the petition, do it, but let me caution you by saying it means nothing. It's not a huge news story. You know, in the last election, the Liberals got 5.5 million votes. The Conservatives got 5.7, the Bloc got 1.3, NDP got 3 million, the Greens got 396,000, the People's Party got 840,000. That there are 40,000 people that do not have confidence in the government right now is not all that surprising. I'm not saying you shouldn't express your frustrations with the government in a myriad of forms, including petitions, but I'm saying that this is not binding, so don't put too much stock on it. It is the NDP that ultimately has to decide to pull its support from the Liberal government. So if you are inclined to sign the petition, I would also say send a letter to your NDP member of Parliament asking them how they in good conscience support a government that has done absolutely nothing to live up to this supply and confidence agreement between the Liberals and the NDP. And I think that letter might weigh more heavily on the Democratic process than this petition will. That does it for us for today. We'll be back in just 23 hours and 15 minutes with more of the Canada. Wait, 20. Yeah, I said that right. 2315. My math is all uh, getting be uh, fuddled up here, but uh, we will talk to you all tomorrow. Thank you. God bless and good day to you all.
0: Thanks for listening to the Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.